Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Our guest today on Looking Forward is Robert J. Thompson. Bob is the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University, where he is also the trustee professor at the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications. Professor Thompson is also a past president of the National Popular Culture Association. He's the author of six books related to that topic and a general editor for an ongoing series of books about TV published by Syracuse University Press. Bob lectures across the country on pop culture and TV. He's also been interviewed or appeared on just about every major media outlet to discuss these topics. So it should come as no surprise to you that we're going to be speaking with Bob about television, movies, and pop culture today on Looking Forward. Hi, Bob. Welcome to Looking Forward. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Bob, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, including what you teach at Syracuse and the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture? Sure. I've been teaching at Syracuse now for 30 years. I taught before that at the State University of New York, a little bit at uh, Cornell, Northwestern, where I did my graduate degrees. Uh, And primarily now I teach in two areas, the history of television. I teach a big, massive course on the history of TV divided into three semesters. So we go through uh, the network era from the very beginning when TV gets introduced at the World's Fair in Queens, New York in 1939. Uh, right up to uh, 1981 with the introduction to Hill Street Blues, which revolutionizes the medium. And then we go into the second semester, which is uh, the cable era from Hill Street Blues in 81 to 9-11 in 2001. And that includes, of course, all of the uh, explosion of quality TV on network uh, television, including uh, Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere, Moonlighting, Twin Peaks, and all the rest of it. but also the cable explosion, the Sopranos, the Wire, those kinds of programs. And then the third semester is the internet era that goes from 2001 to the present. And that uh, brings us into, of course, the continuation of the cable quality revolution, but also into streaming, which seems like it's been going on forever. But original programming on streaming, there were the little comedy things uh, and all that from the uh, turn of the century. But uh, Netflix doesn't introduce House of Cards until the spring of 2013. Wow. That seems like the ancient days that we should be going to Colonial Williamsburg uh, (laughs) to uh, observe. But uh, that wasn't very long ago. And not only has, uh, you know, did they take that and run with it, what, since we started this conversation five minutes ago, Netflix has probably introduced seven new original series. <laughs> wow. And tell us a little bit, if you will, Bob, about the Blair Center. Right. Well, we started out, uh, I got to Syracuse University in 1990, and uh, was teaching television and popular culture there uh, during, that, uh, uh, during that period. 
1997, we started the, what was then called the Center for the Study of Popular Television. And we, uh, you know, published books with the university press about television, big series. You mentioned that in your introduction. Thank you. And we did an oral history. We got uh, interviews with the pioneers of American television. We started that actually even before the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences uh, did. Wow. We got some of the very last interviews with Milton Berle died shortly after we uh, uh, interviewed him, Steve Allen, yes. uh, the same way. So we tried to get these people on tape uh, while, we still, while we still could. It started getting actually kind of macabre because we would interview someone and we were glad to get them. And then we would hear weeks later that they had passed. It was almost like if you got a call for us to be part of the, over, uh, the uh, oral history, uh, you'd better make sure your life insurance was paid off. But <laughs> I don't mean to be—I don't mean to be glib yeah. about that. The whole point is, we were really trying to get these people. It was the last chance because you know, for a good portion of my life, everybody from the history of television, most of them, were still around. They were still popping up on episodes of The Love Boat and Murder She Wrote and yes. uh, that kind of thing. Milton Berle, who was called Mister Television, considered to have kind of launched the medium. He was, you know, you could see him all over. But 20 years ago and 10 years ago, and certainly today, this medium is old enough. It, of course, started at the end of the Second World War. And just like we don't have too many World War II veterans uh, left anymore, and alas, we lose many every day, that's also true of, of American uh, television. Uh, there are few of the real old pioneers left. Carl Reiner was one of them, and he just passed recently. Yes, so we were glad to get that, you know, a lot of those people in ahead of time. Then, of course, we, uh, we teach courses uh, on this in the what's now the Blyer Center. Ed Blyer uh, gave us an endowment. I'm talking to Ed Blyer today, as a matter of fact. He's 91. Wow. Um, and, and, of course, we uh, provide background information and interviews to the press, which you also talked about in the introduction. Well, Bob, that's really a great introduction. I, I just want to make a few comments to some of the things you said. Number one, you mentioned one of my favorite TV personalities and comedians ever, Steve Allen. So thank you for mentioning Steve, and I'm glad you doesn't get to... the credit for late night television is what it is, thanks to Steve Allen. Ah, I think everybody funny. says Johnny Carson this, Johnny Carson that. Steve Allen was doing freaky stuff that Letterman would do in the 80s. Uh, he did an entire episode of his late night show on NBC before it became The Tonight Show on the top of a flagpole, playing a <laughs> piano, throwing <laughs> off canned hams on a parachute to the people down below. This was in the early 1950s. That guy was way, way ahead of me. Yes, and you reminded me he was a great composer, too. He really was. And and he wrote books. He, he would release a book every 10 minutes, like Netflix. He's been gone for many uh, years. Steve Allen's probably written three books since we started. <laughs> that's, that's true. I, and, and one of the great joys of my life was I got to hear him speak in Philadelphia one time. What an amazing guy, a brilliant guy. I have Go a ahead, great Steve Allen story. It takes too long, but someday I will tell it to you. I, I would love to hear it. I would absolutely, because he is one of my heroes, without, without a question. A few other things, just to give the audience and you some context. What I majored in radio, TV, film, and back then, 
we I don't even think we had cable. It was in the early 70s. And maybe I've forgotten what it was like in the early 70s, but I certainly remember many years where we had like four or five stations in the Philadelphia market where, where I was from. And the only other thing I was going to add, and then we'll move on, is Syracuse has a wonderful School of Communications. And as I may have mentioned to you before we actually got on the air today, one of my daughters, who was a journalism major, by the way, we actually uh, took her up to Syracuse and saw Newhouse several years ago. I guess it would have been 14 years ago when she was looking at colleges. And uh, they put her on the wait list. And so she ended up going to the University of Maryland, where she had a good education. But we knew, she knew, that Syracuse was renowned for its communications program. So the fact that you are a trustee professor at Syracuse means an awful lot to me personally, knowing what I know about Syracuse. Well, if you were uh, visiting between October and May, it was probably snowing when you, uh, <laughs> uh, when you got here. Now, Bob, I want to ask you, why do you think that you personally became so interested and involved in studying and teaching TV, film, and pop culture? What, what drew you to that? Well, I was, and you and I are pretty much contemporaries. I was in college from 77 to 81, just a, a few years uh, later than, than you. And back yeah. then, film had been being absorbed in the university. Universities were willing to take film uh, seriously. But television, of course, was considered the antithesis of what academics uh, did. Television was considered what you told your kids not to do when they were supposed to be doing their studying. And part of that, I guess there was good reason for that. When I started uh, in college, at least, and I did not major in this in college, I was an art history and political philosophy major. But back then, we had gone through decades of TV that while it was very good at what it did, it wasn't considered, uh, you know, the same way we considered novels. I grew up on a diet of television of talking horses, Mr. Ed, <laughs> flying nuns, the yeah. flying nun, witches, genies, uh, <laughs> sitcoms set in Nazi war camps. No kidding to the younger people listening. That was really a show. Yeah. Comedy with a laugh crack. You know, all of this kind of my favorite Martian. Yeah, lands and lives with a guy. I mean, crazy stuff. Yeah. And it's still beloved. That's it was really good at what it did. Yeah. But until we get to the 1980s and cable helped to stimulate the network to do this, there wasn't really a whole lot that the fancy highbrow academic could could like about uh, television. So when you were majoring in this in the 1970s, and you can tell that it's an older program because radio, TV, film is what the old departments were called. Then they became yeah. communication studies and media studies yes. and all the rest of them. So there's a certain archaeology in the titles of the departments. <laughs> True. Um, so I graduated in 1981, uh, which happens to be the same year, that January of my senior year, that Hill Street Blues debuts on NBC. Mm. So as I'm getting ready, I was, you know, thinking I would go to graduate school in art history. But all of a sudden, I see this show that demonstrates that a medium for everybody, free, on all the time, a truly mass medium, it still was back then. That's changed a little bit. But that 
it had it could really have these aspirations to be something more serious. And at the same time, I really remembered enjoying some of the happiest times with my family, you know, in the living room, watching the talking horses and the flying nuns <laughs> and all exactly. that kind of stuff. So all of a sudden, as someone who was thinking of going into art history, instead of Renaissance art, which surprise, surprise, I like everybody else like because it's yeah. pretty and Instead of that, the idea of becoming an art history professor, but my art uh, that I would study would be this art of the people. That sounds pretentious, but or whatever. But uh, anyway, uh, seemed interesting to me. And it was just getting started. There were film departments all over taking movies seriously. But TV, you, you could read the entire body of literature of serious work about television as an art form in a weekend. There were a few books back then yeah. in 1981. That was very exciting to me. Northwestern had a department like yours uh, where you went to school called Radio Television Film, which has gone back to the 1940s. And uh, uh, that was just up the street from the University of Chicago where I was an undergraduate. So I decided to go up there. I stayed there through my PhD. And by a great bit of cosmic timing, during that period that I was in my PhD program from 81 to 86, television blossomed as a, as, as a new American art form. It started to do the kinds of things with Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere and that, that we would have never in a million years thought would have been possible in what we used to call, remember, the boob tube. The yes. idiot box, yes, we all did. of that kind of thing. So when I started, English departments poo-pooed what we did. We got all this flack from the rest of the university. How dare you be giving college credit for watching Gilligan's Island? This is <laughs> the end of civilization that, as we know it. But just as they were complaining about that, the medium was beginning to supply stuff that was going to go against uh, uh, that argument. And... I remember saying toward the end of my graduate that, you know, pretty soon the English departments are going to not only be accepting what we do, they're going to be doing it themselves. Hmm. And life is not going to be quite as fun when we don't have this battle to fight. And I was right. The battle has been won. English departments are teaching television courses. Uh, uh, they've completely absorbed what they used to uh, complain about. The things that the Popular Culture Association had to be set up to do because no other serious academic association would do it, none of that's the case. I'd like to say we won that battle because we fought it, and we fought it in on 60 Minutes and on Dateline. We fought it publicly, but it wasn't just us that won the battle. The medium started delivering something other than talking horses and flying nuns. And of course, today, many people argue that what's going on on television, if we include streaming and cable and everything, is in many cases more sophisticated, certainly that's what go than what's going on in most of the American cinema, but even uh, what's going on in the American novel. And we're going to get into that. I did want to just comment again on a couple of things you said there. One is, speaking of great communication schools, hello, Northwestern, okay? So... Put in a plug for Northwestern there. The other thing is I can remember, Bob, way back in the day, and I'm talking about when I went to Temple University as an RTF, radio, TV, film major, 
Another one of the very old, established, good, solid bulwarks of uh, television studies. They've been doing that for a long, long time. That is correct. And and what I want to say is I can remember, and I don't think I'm what uh, used to be called by Spiro Agnew an effete intellectual snob, but I remember my main interest in watching TV was uh, PBS. In our area, it was Channel 12, and I thought, they have good programming. You know? So it's interesting the way you talk about the, the growth, the maturity, in a positive way, of that particular medium. Now, Just a quick shout-out, by the way, to your market, Philadelphia. It gave us some of television's real uh, important characters. Dick Clark, who, by the uh, way, would come to Syracuse University for college. We have the Dick Clark studio here. He wow. came out of Philadelphia. Yes. And one of, in my opinion, the, one of the greatest, I will go so hyperbolically far as to say geniuses of American television, Ernie Kovacs. Oh, yeah. Started out in, uh, he was, what, New Jersey, whatever, and he started out in the Philadelphia market, would go on to do some of the most incredible TV dada until he died uh, in a car accident in 1962, just yeah. as he was at the peak of his career. Yeah, that was such a tragedy. Bob, you touched on this, but I'm going to ask you to go a little deeper. You're an author and an expert on the topic. I would like you to talk about how you would say TV, film, and pop culture have changed over, say, just just the past decade or so. I know you, you kind of went through that whole process fairly quickly earlier. And if you could give the audience some examples, some specific examples of the changes that you've seen in those three media, if you call pop culture a medium? Yeah, well, it, it is, uh, it's mind-boggling. Forget the past decade, the changes that have happened over the past year. When, wow. you know, wow. I mean, we've got, uh, what, Disney comes in uh, with Disney Plus in November. Uh, Peacock just started. I mean, yes. streaming is, even in this last year, has expanded. In, but let's, let's take the past decade. So that would be, what, 2010. 2010, YouTube was only five years old, but by that time, YouTube had already completely kind of taken over the public consciousness. YouTube launches in, and if I'm not mistaken, April of 2005. By the time we get the first presidential election, there is a CNN YouTube set of primary debates. So wow. YouTube is an infant, and it's playing this major, major role in the most important levels of, uh, of U.S. politics. But 10 years ago, 2010, streaming, of course, was, uh, was possible. People began to get video on television in the late 1990s. There were these sponsor-made program series uh, that were done in the early part of the new century. So it's not like 10 years ago, streaming was this amazing new thing. However, we did not yet get the institutionalization of that really until Netflix decided it was going to go from a, and I love how Netflix starts as a, a DVD distribution through ye old post office. I mean, practically they were bringing us DVDs on ponies. And, and of course, you remember you get those red and white little envelopes and you yep. get your DVD and you send the bat back killed off Blockbuster. Blockbuster had killed off mom and pop video rental stores. That evolution all happened quickly. But mm. when Netflix started showing their originals, uh, Lillehammer was their first one in an international uh, cooperation. But House of Cards in spring of 
2013, and then that summer, Orange is the New Black, and their idea of dropping them all at once. That, I think, was the clarion call that things were really going to be different because these shows not only were good, some of the best programming on uh, television, but you could watch them all at the same time and you could watch them whenever you darn well pleased. I mean, they were there, you could uh, go uh, to them. And Netflix, of course, was willing to put in wheelbarrow loads full of cash to continue to produce uh, this, this kind of thing. And within the, the, the next years, it in the last 10 years have, have, have changed. I know this is a cliche, but changed everything. Most of my students go home to a dormitory or an apartment or a sorority house or wherever it is that they live. In most cases, they do not even have a television set there. Wow. Wow. Um, the way people watch TV now is generally on a portable device wherever they want good news is so much more great programming so many more voices that we didn't hear before television if you include streaming and all the rest of it is so much better than it's ever been before the bad news is we have completely eliminated the cultural glue that used to keep us all together for eight decades from the turn of the last century to about 1980 and not having that cultural glue could, and there's an awful lot of evidence that it will, be the demise of the great American experiment. That's a whole other area that I hadn't even thought about that you just brought up. You alluded to this with Netflix. Can you also go a little further with film itself? What changes have you noticed in addition to what Netflix has done in the evolution of Netflix in the film arena. What have you seen there, Bob? Okay, well, let's go back a little further and shut me up if I go into lecture mode and uh, <laughs> I'm going into too much uh, detail. But uh, l let's take the first big revolution. Everybody thinks that streaming is the big revolution, and of course it was. But to me, the big change, and this was for television, but it was also for film, was the VCR. The Betamax, the first one that uh, people had. And these started yeah. becoming sort of affordable in the late 1970s. I think our middle class uh, family managed to uh, buy one in about 1981 or so. But let's think about what a difference that this, uh, that this made. I remember growing up hearing Citizen Kane is the greatest movie in the world. Citizen Kane this, Citizen Kane that, yeah. whatever. Yeah. I'll shut up about Citizen Kane. <laughs> but I really wanted to see it. Yeah. And until we get into the era of home video, you had to either watch the late night reruns that would play on stations uh, locally all across uh, the country and maybe catch that. Or you maybe could live on a campus that would play, you know, had the 16 millimeter film society things and they'd play it. Otherwise, you didn't get to see it. Right. What the VCR allowed was to turn audiovisual material into a thing like books. It could be stored, it could be put on a shelf, and you could watch it whenever you wanted. That was the revolution. That was a big deal. The first many decades of television went off into the ether, and unless you could go faster than the speed of light and catch it on its way to Alpha Centauri, you, you, you couldn't see it again. 
and films. You, you saw it when it was released, and then you'd maybe catch it on, on reruns. So what I think the big thing with mo- uh, movies then, and this started with the rerun on TV, is that while a lot of people will see them in the release, most people through the rest of history will see movies on a TV screen. Streaming took that to the extreme. Huge libraries of film. Most people will see most of their films on a small screen, either a portable or a television. And now with COVID, it's accelerated what was already going to happen, which is this idea of releasing movies directly to streaming, which then kind of what is the definition of a movie versus television versus streaming and all the rest of it. John Stewart's new movie, direct to screening, to streaming. Um, Mulan, direct to streaming, if you've got $29.99 on top of your Disney Plus subscription. So I think the change in the evolution of the distribution of movies has been, was going to happen anyway, but it's been accelerated by COVID. It doesn't mean that theaters are going to go away, but it's going to be some big changes in how theaters are positioned in American It's wonderful how you've sized this all up and done it in a very, very concise way. Again, I'm going to add a couple of things here. One is to your point about you're going to see movies mostly in your home on a screen there. My girlfriend and I are into this thing now where there are a lot of movies we have not seen, and I'm talking older and newer. And every Sunday night now, we're watching a movie through um, Amazon Prime, <laughs> you know, that's how we're, we're seeing the movies. Of course, with COVID, who's going out to see a movie? Not many people. The other thing that this, what you're saying reminds me of, Bob, the, the evolution, the change, and now the change even more rapid than ever before. Years ago, I was a quote-unquote expert on the population over 50, the so-called mature market. And I remember one of my great fears was I would be getting out in front of an audience and I'd be mentioning somebody or something, for example, George Byrne. And I would always be afraid of, I'd be talking about somebody or something and somebody in the audience might say, wait a minute, didn't you read yesterday George Burns died? Keeping up with things was such a challenge. And I'm wondering just quickly here, with you being a professor and being regarded as, and truthfully so, as an expert on this, do you ever get concerned about how do I keep up with all this stuff that's happening? Oh, it's, it's becoming, I mean, it, you know, it used to be you worked really hard during the fall season uh, because the new stuff would happen. You'd get a break during the summer, during the rerun, the rerun season. Now new stuff is coming up constantly. I do try to keep up with all the new significant, whatever that means, programming that's coming on, which means Hulu and Amazon and Netflix and uh, Disney Plus and Apple, and I'm forgetting a whole bunch of them as well. And there's great stuff coming out in these Sundance Now, a a cable channel, just had one of the most interesting new series uh, to come out in a long time. The amount of time per day that I actually have to watch simply keeping up with things can reach, uh, not unusual for me to have me watching television on a date at 12 hours. Uh, wow. Hey, uh, now my dad was a plumber. So <laughs> when someone hears that, Oh, you've got to watch television for 12 hours a day and get paid for it. Boo hoo. Um, <laughs> I, I, I understand that I'm not complaining, but it, it is really, really hard to keep up. And of course I don't. 
keep up entirely. There simply aren't enough hours in the day. Uh, in the old days, if you'd have called me in October of a given season, I would have seen every show that had debuted on the networks. I'd be familiar with all the shows. But back then, 22 hours a week per network, there were, what, 85 shows playing at any given time on the network. The number yes. of shows playing any given time on all of the platforms we've got now is like infinity minus one. <laughs> That's staggering. Bob, if I, can, if I can use a metaphor of sorts here, or maybe it's an analogy that is apropos, there are many times when I will feel just even about the information that's being thrown at me on the computer screen, you know, with emails and internet stuff, not even TV, that I'm like Lucy with the chocolates. Yeah, right. I just and, played and, that in class last week, that very episode. Yeah, that incredible episode and with the conveyor belt and everything. And, and that's kind of the way I feel. And I don't even have to be, fortunately, I believe, an expert anymore. And you do. And it just must be so difficult to be an expert. Although they did say, right, that an expert knows 5% more than the other people. So. Well, one of the things that, that helped, and you know, I follow as a popular culture person, I have to follow what people are tweeting. I mean, that's now one of the significant ways in which the president of the United States communicates. So I've got to follow all that's going on in social media and what people are doing in social media. But one thing that saves me a lot of time is I personally do not do any social media. I don't have a Facebook account. I don't yeah. have a Twitter account. I don't have a Snapchat, any of that uh, yeah. kind of stuff. And simply in observing my own colleagues, forget everybody else, if they were to take that same policy, they could probably liberate a good three hours a day from their life. So that's one of the prices I've paid. And I don't miss it because I never did it, is while I have to follow the Twitter activity of people in the popular culture environment, I don't spend any time doing it myself. That saves an awful lot of time if you think about how much time people spend. Absolutely, Bob. And you have articulated something there that I'm constantly trying to remind myself of. And more times than not, I'm winning, but sometimes I do lose, and that is focus. Focus is so important. You've got to focus on the things that you really have to do. And the discretionary stuff, unfortunately, sometimes like those chocolates on the conveyor belt, they're going to run right by you. Yeah, very good. Now, let me ask you, you again started to talk about this. If you could briefly, I know it won't be easy to talk about this briefly, but if you kind of briefly comment on COVID-19 again. What impact specifically do you see this having on pop culture, TV, the movie industries? You talked about, well, people are, of course, more at home now, right? So we know that. But what else do you see happening in your world, Bob? Well, short term, of course, uh, we've seen all the productions, late night productions got up almost immediately shot from home. We just had this uh, HBO movie, Coastal Elites, which was kind of painful to watch, but that was entirely about this. Freeform's Love in the Time of Corona, uh, an NBC show, I forget what it's called, going to be about this. So short term, we're going to have programs about quarantine, and we've had all this programming done in place. But let's be optimistic and assume that we are going to get out again, and those kinds of limitations of production and everything are going to go away. I still think there are going to be some major things uh, we've learned from it. Number one, television viewers have gotten used to seeing people interviewed 
via the internet and Zoom. It's not like Skype wasn't being done before, but it was in a last ditch effort. When I would get a call to be on a show, I would go down to the studio and we'd do a fancy uplink in a studio so it would look really good. And that would cost money to, uh, to do. I think we're going to see now interviews on network cable and all across the board are going to people have gotten used to what this looks like. So there's not, you're not going to have to haul people into, into uh, studios. Secondly, I think uh, the idea of watching, we talked about this before, but the idea of uh, movies being released uh, directly to video, they're going to have to work that all out with the distributors versus the uh, exhibitors and stuff. Again, I don't think movies are going to go away, but I think there's an idea that many people would rather just watch this stuff the way they watch everything else. And I think the downsizing, well, the complete elimination of theatrical uh, releases, theaters will reopen, but I think they will be probably uh, in a smaller way than they were before. I mean, a movie is still, if you don't live in a fancy city with all kinds of other options, movie and going out to eat are some of the only things you can do socially, date or, or whatever. I'm surprised at how people do not demand, even though they're watching big movies, superhero action movies that really ought to be watched on an enormous screen with the seats that vibrate from the bass coming out, they, they don't seem to really care as much. I am shocked by how students now are willing to watch Avatar or the Titanic on their phone or their <laughs> tablet, which yeah. seems to me completely absurd. But the convenience of doing it, the way in which lifestyles have changed, and I think have changed very much as we've adapted to COVID means that it's going to be harder and harder to actually drag people into theaters, Scorsese and Spielberg's comments notwithstanding, than simply the ease of doing it uh, at home like you and I are doing this. Exactly. Again, your comments always remind me of things, Bob. One is I mentioned watching movies every week on a Sunday, and recently my girlfriend and I watched Cinema Paradiso. Ah. Uh, and there it is. I mean, it's all about a small town in Italy and the big point of action, the locus of everything was going to the cinema, right? And it's a little different now. Another thing that I've noticed with myself is before this all happened, I was going to Planet Fitness, the gym. One of the things I didn't care for about Planet Fitness, although I loved a lot about it, was they were playing music that I didn't like. And there was no way to change it. I asked them. They said, well, we're sorry. We, we can't change this music. So now I'm at home and I'm using my exercise machine and I'm playing the music I like. You know? So there, there is some, some benefit to that. Now, along the lines of the, of the COVID-19 and the impact it may have in the future and other things that might change in the future, one thing I want to ask you about, and then I'd like you to sort of riff on that a little further, is uh, what about drive-in movies? I understand there's been a little bit of maybe a renaissance with those because you're in your own space. Do you see anything happening there? Well, short term, yes, and we have seen that. Drive-in movies, let's face it, was the greatest idea ever that never quite went as far as we would have expected when we saw it on paper. I mean, what are the two things mid-century that really defined the American soul, automobiles and Hollywood. 
movies yeah. and cars. And the idea of the drive-in theater, which puts those together with the bonus of junk food at the little concession stand <laughs> and a playground for the kids, yeah. it, it was almost too great an idea to even fathom what a great idea I agree. was. And of course, it did pretty well in its heyday. There were drive-ins all over the place. Uh, I remember on weekends, we'd go up to Wisconsin from Chicago, and in the route we followed uh, up to Wisconsin uh, at night, we would see, and at the peak of it, seven different drivings going. And my brother and I would try to identify what movie it was and see <laughs> as much as we could as the car was. And of course, it was far back. That was the, the peak of the drive-in. Great. Of course, we all knew what happened. The real estate that those drive-ins were on became valuable suburban real estate, and it was a lot more efficient to build housing developments there than it was to uh, uh, get tickets $1.50 at $1.50 a, a pop or whatever. And most of the great drive-ins went away, and the drive-ins that stayed were playing on this nostalgic market. Now, drive-ins, once again, the perfect COVID idea. You literally drive in in a hermetically sealed device, <laughs> yes. your car, to watch movies in a social situation with other people. And you can do a date as well. Drive-ins were a great place to make out. In. So again, the drive-in kind of comes again as this idea too good to be true. And it's true. We've seen a lot of them coming. But it does become still a real estate issue. It takes a lot of space. You either have to go far out where the real estate's cheap and then people don't want to drive that far. And when you come in, it's not so cheap. If this COVID situation becomes more permanent for any number of reasons that we have to be cautious of spreading whatever, then I think the drive-in could become more an institutional thing. Now, I think it's kind of a stopgap, both nostalgic and convenient way to do things. But if we start all going out again, and if we're told to take, we can take off our masks and we can sit close together, and all the rest of it, then the same challenges that the drive-in had back in the end of its first peak are going to be challenges that it will continue to have. Good points. Bob, one of the reasons why this podcast is called Looking Forward is because we try to look out and speculate what might be in front of us, and we ask experts like you to do that speculation rather than novices like me or non-experts. So is there anything else that you would point to, Bob, that, again, we're asking you to speculate, nobody knows who knew about COVID, right? That, that you think might come about over the next five to 10 years in your areas of expertise, TV, film, pop culture in general? Well, I think the big thing is going to be the continuation of what we've been seeing, which is the move from how we consume, uh, in the case of television film, how we consume it. And first we did it over the air television. Then we did it with a coaxial cable coming to our house cable. Uh, and now we're doing it, uh, well, it also requires on something coming into our house, but now we're doing it online. And I think more and more and more, we are going to see that the way people consume both television and movies for the most part is going to be through these digital kinds of devices. I'm not saying that television stations are going to go away uh, in the immediate future or that the cable operations are going to go away, but the writing is on the wall. I think that this technology is going to become the paradigmatic way in which stuff is done. And that has, again, some blessings and some curses. 
if over-the-air television stations go away, what happens to local news, which is really, really important? CNN yes. isn't covering uh, uh, that. Um, and we can look at the kind of history of local newspapers. Syracuse, uh, New York, once a big, proud city on the uh, Erie Canal, has not got a daily paper anymore. We get wow. delivery on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, a mm. uh, physical paper, and some relatively anemic online things there. So there will be prices we pay for all of this. But the good news, I suppose, is if you think about it, how much better television have you got now than you did when you were a kid? How many more voices can you hear from people who were totally silenced uh, on TV uh, when you were a kid? How many more movies have you watched this week than you watched when you were a kid? I mean, there is a sense of a bounty of information. That means you can see great stuff and get new ideas, or it means that you can fall into one of these holes of people aimed specifically at you and being driven completely insane with false information. All of that comes together. There is nothing inherently good or bad about a technology. The good or bad is how we use that technology. And we've seen examples of both good and bad, plenty of them this week alone, not to mention since they've been coming out. Yes, one thing to add there is I heard an excellent professor who's probably written one or two books. You may have heard of him, Professor Barry Schwartz. I think I've got his name right. And he wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And it's kind of like, yeah, we have all these choices. But on the other hand, like you said, they can drive you crazy. You know, it's like, you don't know, well, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I watch this? Should I watch that? It can be a little bit overwhelming at times. And, and not only drive you crazy in not being able to figure out what you should watch, but if you choose, make the wrong choices, you can be being driven crazy consciously by the people supplying the information. And I don't know where to fall on this. I remember as a kid, I got a civic education because I had no choice. I'd turn on the TV and I'd want to watch, I don't know, Happy Days, and it'd be a State of the Union again. And I'd turn the channel and it'd be the State of the Union again. <laughs> I'd turn the channel and it'd be the State of the Union again. So I had two choices, turn off the TV, which I didn't want to do, or watch the State of the Union address with the hope that it would be short and they would return to original programming, which I wanted to watch in the first. Everybody was forced into kind of a, a, a center, uh, which yes. was network television. Now, if I turn on the TV and it's the State of the Union address, I have hundreds of thousands, millions, I guess, of other choices. Nobody ever has to watch anything that they don't want to watch. I wasn't interested in sports in the summer of 1972. The Olympics were on. Everything else during the weekend was boring. I watched it. It introduced me to a whole new track and field, something that became an important part of my life. That kind of thing does not happen. That, I think, is bad and ultimately, I think, civically dangerous. But all that stuff that I watched because I had no choice back then had absolutely no diversity. It was one message by one type of person over and over and over again. And I do have lots of other choices in that uh, uh, respect. What the three networks considered the people worthy of speaking to us was a pretty small slice of people. 
Yeah, what you're saying, Bob, is a great example of the yin and yang of things. On the one hand, it's wonderful to have this abundance of choices and not be forced to watch the State of the Union address when you really want to see happy days. On the other hand, I think you used a wonderful phrase, or I just remember one word, but it was a phrase. The glue, the glue that kind of bound us together, it's not really there. When Ed Sullivan would have the Beatles on, like, you know, everybody, there you, was go. Like, you know, we don't have that anymore. It's fragmented. We got a lot of fragmentation going on. And that's interesting you bring that up because Ed Sullivan had the Beatles on. It was kind of a happy moment for the entire country after the Kennedy assassination. Yes. So, uh, yeah, there isn't that. And, you know, we can say, oh, well, you know, long for the good old days of pre-fragmentation. But it's not just nostalgia. That fragmentation, as we see evidence of every single minute, is challenging the very foundations of the institutions that keep this country ticking. When Walter Cronkite used to end his broadcast, and that's the way it is. Yeah. That's absurd on so many levels. To say that what one guy has just said <laughs> in 23 minutes or 24 minutes of content I love it. and yes. commercials is the way it is, that's, that's ridiculous on so many levels. <laughs> However, there was a sense in which that brought people to a certain place where everybody was kind of agreeing on a certain set of data. And sometimes agreeing on that was oppressive and bad. But sometimes it did important things. Think of what Walter Cronkite achieved when he did that editorial saying, you know, we need to get out of this Vietnam War, which he did in 1968. Yes. Student protesters in the youth movement, the parents of those student protesters that were kicking them out of the house, everybody had a kind of come to grips with the fact that that was an agreed upon sort of place. And again, I'll have to say that that was oppressive on a number of levels because it limited the voices we had. But it had a stabilizing feature to it, and there is no equivalent of that stabilizing feature. Now, you can't point to a single information source that not only that everybody agrees upon, but you can't point to any that doesn't have people that are simply saying it's completely false. And depending on where your uh, beliefs are, it depends on which one you say are false and which ones you say are true. Yes, that is true. I have to say that your insight about Walter Cronkite and the way he ended his new show was wonderful. <laughs> you know, I never gave much thought to it, and that's the way it is. You know, it, it's, it was just wonderful for you to point that out to us because those of us who remember Walter Cronkite and his words probably didn't think twice about that. That's the way it is. You, know? <laughs> you believed him. Yeah, right. I, I and... think that, that's terrific. Another thing about looking forward, Bob, is we also, in looking at trends, like to think in a more positive way, as you've tried to be as well here, even pointing out some potential risks. We like to see where there might be opportunities. And here I'm speaking about the need for many people who have lost their jobs due to COVID-19, millions of them, others who may be changing their career for whatever reason, people who are involved in doing work or want to be involved in doing work after their first retirement, or of course, the many students that you are teaching and are at other institutions who are trying to figure out what career field to pursue. 
based on what you know, where do you think there might be opportunities for these individuals in TV, film, or pop culture, Bob? Yeah, okay. Well, there are some optimistic things about uh, that. Uh, many of my students, of course, their dream upon graduation is to about three quarters of them of, of them to go out to L.A. and about a quarter of them to go to New York. And most of them would like to make it big in the standard way, getting a job at a big movie, getting a apprenticeship at a, you know, on a writing staff of a TV show or something like that. And there still are those ways to do things. That takes a lot of work. You've got to become good at writing if that's what you want to do and you've got to, all that sort of thing. But one of the good things that have come out of the troubles of this fragmented environment is that you're not limited to that. It used to be that if you wanted to uh, write about, comment about television popular culture as a critic, as a commentator or whatever, or if you wanted to uh, you know, do a television talk show, you had very few choices. There were the ones that were out there, and if they didn't hire you, that was it. I suppose you could take your commentary and type it out in Xerox it and put it under the windshields of people's cars, <laughs> but there weren't that many choices. Now, there are. If you've got an internet connection and a reasonable uh, a knowledge of uh, how to use that, you can, in fact, become a TV critic right now. You can start writing stuff. You can go on. You can post it. There are podcasts and blogs, although I hear that word less uh, than I used to a few years ago. You can go on to YouTube. You can start your own YouTube channel. There are all these ways uh, to happen. Now, for every million people that do that, only a small few will break through to a larger audience, and only a smaller number will actually be able to make a living. So I guess there's two things. The news is really good for people who have a creative sense and need an outlet for it because there are lots of those outlets. Turning that into making a living, of course, requires then all the hard work of actually becoming really good at it, good enough that people will want to. And that requires, you know, not just saying what you liked about the episode of Game of Thrones, but having a body of knowledge that makes you different from the lots of other people that do it. But I, I think it's kind of like poetry. Very few people make money writing poems. But many, many people write wonderful poems that they, it's important to them, it's important to the people that they give them to. I think there's a real value of doing some of this stuff that may not necessarily end up being getting your own show on a television station. What about, Bob, and I hear you on that for the people who are good enough to make a living out of it, not easy. What about what I would refer to as the ancillary or maybe back office opportunities. So you're not the guy or, or gal who's writing the critique of the movie that gets published wherever online in Time Magazine or whatever, but will there be ancillary opportunities that will be less in the spotlight, but nevertheless, there will be jobs businesses, careers? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly there are. And again, it depends on what. There's always going to be, uh, you know, for, people are going to be making movies and television shows for a while. And those get made, not only uh, uh, employ the people who are on camera that we all see, or the people with the big credits that wrote and directed and produced it. But if you've ever watched the credits at the end of a movie, 
when the credits start, you can go out, get popcorn, go to the bathroom, have a conversation, come back in, and the credits are still going. <laughs> so true. yes, there are all. It takes a <laughs> lot of people. What was that old phrase? It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a city to make a television show. <laughs> so yes, there are all of those kinds of things. Now, with regards to people who who like to comment and crit- critics, whatever that kind of thing, one of the problems is that the places that that was normally done magazines, newspapers, those jobs are disappearing. I don't think our newspaper in Syracuse, we used to have a wonderful TV crew. He'd go to LA during the press tours and and, uh, interview all the people, wrote some really good stuff. We eliminated our TV critic at at the the Syracuse newspaper probably 15 years ago, haven't had one since. We don't have a film critic. Many newspapers don't have those because the newspapers don't exist anymore, magazines as well. So I think that outlet really is one starts doing it in a podcast, in in a uh, website, whatever. And then when you start getting good at it and start collecting uh, listeners, then you can apply to you know send that stuff like you would in any other job. And there are many people now making a good living as uh, writers of television, film, pop culture. Uh, criticism, who in fact started out doing it online for uh, nothing. Even self-published books, which I used to poo-poo this. I don't anymore. And I I realize I was wrong about this. While books by big publishers, I do like the idea that it's gone through a long process of professional people. It's been properly edited and all the rest. I still think that's important. But I have read, and I read a lot of books. I've read 10 or 12 books in the last couple of years that have been self-published that have been really, really fine books. And with that, you may not make a lot of money, but there are platforms in which you, whoever buys one, you get a certain percentage of it. You don't have to worry about an agent uh, taking a 10% cut or anything. And uh, there have been a couple of people who have started with self-published books who have then gotten the attention with those books that those books have been picked up by regular publishers. And some of those people are writing in some pretty uh, well-paid professional positions. None of that was available when we were kids. None of those opportunities. That's an excellent point. And to, to that, I would also add, Bob, that somebody exchanged an email with me recently, and they said, I won't get into the context of it, but their point was, well, we all have to start someplace, don't we? And that's true. There was something in Parade Magazine I saw recently where they named all these famous celebrities and what did you do for your first job? And it may not have had anything to do with their stardom. But in any event, we all had to start somewhere. And the self-publishing book, as an example, was not something that was available to us before. So that certainly is a door that's been opened. Yeah, anybody could do it. Documentaries. Again, when we were kids, if you you made a documentary, there were, what, you could, PBS, if PBS bought it, and that was about it. The networks made their own news documentaries. Now, think of the wonderful documentaries. I've seen a hundred great documentaries in the past six months, and there are so many venues for them. I mean, it is a, the documentary, I think, is a form that is at its peak. It's enjoying an explosion we've never seen before. They're relatively inexpensive to make comparatively. 
They can be made, uh, you know, without a huge budget. And then you can, the minute you make them, you can put them up on YouTube. And then if it's good, it will be discovered. That's a form for all of the challenges we see in journalism and in newspapers and all the rest of it. Uh, when I look at what's going on in the documentary in this and other countries, some really, really wonderful, fine work. Terrific example. Bob, I so appreciate all this great information and the insights that you're sharing with everybody. I'd just like to close by asking you, how can our listeners reach you if they want to learn more about you, about your several books, your classes, your research, even the National Popular Culture Association that you're involved with? Oh, well, that's another... Yeah, that's another story uh, for another day, along with my Steve Allen story and my wonderful Cinema Paradiso story, all of which will wait for an extra. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to time. bring you back. Yeah. Yes. As I pointed out, I'm uh, not on uh, any of the social media platforms, but if you go to the Syracuse University website to the Newhouse School, you can find me easily enough there. And uh, that's got my email and that's, I do use email. I'm not, uh, I'm not that far from Okay. Bob, can you give us your email address here? Yep. Are you ready? I'm ready. It's R-T-H-O-M-P-S-O, leave out the N for some reason, at S-Y-R, first three letters of Syracuse, dot E-D-U. Okay. Bob, thank you so much for being our guest and looking forward. It's been wonderful. That was really fun. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.